Today is my last Sunday as your senior associate minister. Thank you. I will pray for you. <laughs> I'm going to make you endure a moment uh, at the beginning of this sermon to uh, sort of express some of my words of thanks. So bear with me. Uh, I am very grateful for the time I've been amongst you. Uh, most of all, of course, to Dr. Stephen Bauman, who invited me here, uh, expressed a lot of confidence in me, and supported me uh, throughout all of the crazy things I've done here. I'm also grateful, of course, to my uh, program staff colleagues and my administrative staff colleagues, Leslie, the two Steves, Bauman and Pilkington, Catherine, Brian, our uh, recently welcomed Chad, uh, Heather, Robert, Jonathan and Roseanne, and all the staff here at Christ Church that sort of keep our building going, the, the guys, as we call them, Chris, Denny, Danny, Henry, and Carl, they've been the butt of many of my jokes and tolerated practical jokes all the time for me, so I appreciate their patience. And I share this day of departure with Griffin McMahon, our, our scholar, our organ scholar, who will also, this is also his last Sunday with us, and so uh, I've been glad to work with Griffin as well, and, and as we leave together, I wish him well and hope you will, too. And of course, I'm also quite grateful to the, the lay leadership of this church, a number of folks who uh, went out of their way to be supportive and kind to me, uh, people like Marcia Askins, Tucker York, uh, Jeff Lieberman, Don Harima, and of course, all of you who are here as part of this congregation, everyone has been uh, generous and kind to me, and I'm very, very grateful for the partnership we've had as we've striven to uh, faithfully follow our, our mutual agenda to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. I'm grateful for the friendships that we have forged together and for the ministry that we have accomplished, and I leave Christ Church with strong feelings of affection and thanks and with the confidence that Great things are on the horizon for this community of faith, and I look forward to witnessing that from a slight distance. As most of you know, I have lived a very charmed life, and I often have wondered why on earth I have been so, uh, so lucky to have such a good life. I was born blessed, and it only got better from there. And my time here with you is just another and a string of sort of fortuitous experiences and opportunities that have shaped my life. To be fair, I've had a few uh, disappointments, painful losses. I usually succeed, but there have been occasions when I have been defeated or failed. But any way you do the math in my life, I, I come out ahead, and I'm a lucky guy. And the greatest emblem of my fortune is, of course, my wife, Bela, who boldly said yes to this New York adventure. And she's been my faithful companion and friend for the past seven years or so. And so most of all, I say thank you to Bela for taking this journey with me and for all the many ways you've made my already blessed life even better. With all of that, it's easy to understand why I am a generally grateful person. 
it's harder to understand how I can still be crabby, frustrated, depressed from time to time. But if you ask any of those aforementioned people who I just thanked, they will affirm that yes, on occasion, this highly blessed individual is a truly pain in the rear. I'm not one of those people who just sort of wakes up happy. That's not my personality type. For me, gratitude has to be cultivated. It has to be nurtured. I have to work at it. Brian Pinter has told me that he wakes up in the morning, and the first thing he does before he even gets out of bed is he applauds the new day with a clap and a big smile on his face. This is how Brian and I are different. I wake up and think, oh no, not this again. We're wired differently. But however we may be wired, in the words of Dr. Bauman, gratitude abounds. Gratitude in the sense of, a, of an intentional, cultivated appreciation of the blessings of this life and an honest awareness that the source of my fortune is the grace of a loving and merciful God, not the result of my hard work or righteous merit. Which brings me to our gospel lesson. Simon, in the story that Stephen read, was the kind of guy who didn't spend a lot of time cultivating his sense of gratitude. He was quite certain, as a Pharisee, that he deserved his place of privilege in his world. I suppose if Simon was grateful for anything, he was grateful that God had made him such a good and righteous person. And he was pretty proud of himself for having the, the kindness and generosity to invite this supposed prophet to come into his house for dinner. Jesus was lucky to be in his home and to have some of his valuable time and, and to receive some of his, his valuable wisdom and insight. But as a scandalous woman came to weep at Jesus' feet and to wash his feet with her tears and to dry his feet with her hair and to annoy his feet with oil and even, even to kiss his feet over and over again. Well, it became clear to Simon right away, Jesus was no prophet. No prophet of Israel would allow this woman anywhere near them. Jesus had no idea who this woman was. And Jesus was no prophet because he couldn't see into her heart to understand exactly the kind of woman who was touching him so visibly. A true prophet would have seen the truth about her and sent her away with a strong and harsh rebuke. Simon lived his life encased in a very cushy bubble of privilege. He lived in a world that affirmed that he was a person of, of great value and worth, and that he merited the privileged position that he held. He was, he was better than most people. 
everything in his world, from his financial means to his religious beliefs and symbols to his gender and his race, everything he knew told him that he was exceptional. And so from his vantage point within this bubble of privilege, he clearly sees Jesus is no prophet, and this woman is dirty and filthy and ought to get out of his house. And frankly, if it had not been Jesus there, his bubble would have remained firmly intact. He would have dismissed this woman, chastised Jesus, and remained comfortably convinced of his own worldview. It's easy for me to relate to Simon. I already told you I've lived a a charmed life. I've had advantages and opportunities that many do not. I was raised to be humble, but humility is no match for privilege. Privilege is invisible. It works without any effort on our part. It just silently reinforces the order of things. And you really can, if you choose, journey through life without a thought about your privilege, but you'll still benefit. Doors will still be opened. Opportunities will still come your way. Problems other people face will be easily avoided. And you might just conclude that you just deserve it all, that you're just a little better than most people. We just came back this week from our annual conference and the politics of the Methodist Church have sort of been on my mind and I've been thinking about the state of the church in the world today and it's troubling to think about that. But I've become increasingly sort of convinced that our biggest problem in the United Methodist Church, bigger than the problems that grab the headlines, is that our our privilege has so enveloped us as a church that we're no longer sensitive to the real human needs outside of our doors. The suffering that people are enduring, not that far from here, even even right in here, even in the seat next to you this morning, we've just kind of grown numb to that. We don't really feel it in any real way because we don't really have to. We are encased in a complex of of systems and powers that we don't have to consciously do anything about, but that work in concert to ensure that we are seldom inconvenienced and never bothered by realities that we would rather ignore. The bubble for us in the Methodist Church has gotten so thick that that most churches measure their success in terms of, of budgets and bank accounts instead of in terms of human lives changed or impacted. The bubble has gotten so thick that churches spend valuable resources maintaining outmoded buildings while people are struggling and whole communities are in desperate need. The bubble of privilege has desensitized us, much like Simon, from authentic human encounters with one another that aren't mitigated by our cell phone screens and self-selected affinity-based 
associations. What would happen to us if we invited Jesus over for dinner? Simon never noticed this unnamed woman who adorned Jesus' feet until he could no longer ignore her. She was a, a shadow person to him whose life was of no significance to Simon except as another reminder of his superior position in the world. To Simon, she practically didn't exist. What I find interesting about this story is that Jesus loved Simon. He loved this outcast woman, to be sure, but he loved Simon, too. Now, the text doesn't explicitly state that, but I think it's clear from how Jesus handled this situation. He uses it to change Simon's heart. It turns out Jesus is, in fact, a prophet in this story. And he does, in fact, know the heart of this woman, the trials, her sin, everything else about her. But what Simon didn't realize is that Jesus also knew Simon's heart. And he knew that Simon had become numb within his bubble of privilege, and he wanted to wake Simon up. From Simon's perspective, Simon saw a, a sinful woman inappropriately touching a, a false prophet. But Jesus saw an exemplar of gratitude whose extravagant display was in direct response to her personal experience of God's unending grace. Simon, from his vantage point, considered himself a, a holy and upright Pharisee. But Jesus saw a blind, numb, indifferent, self-righteous, and lost soul in desperate need of redemption. The bubble of privilege had allowed Simon's heart to rot. But Jesus came to dinner, and Simon's bubble was burst. And Simon was exposed, perhaps for the first time, to the power of God's love, which will not adhere to our expectations or our privileged perspectives, but which will always seek to embrace another in God's grasp. God's love reached through all that soul-killing privilege and touched Simon's heart. Friends, I think that's what we need today. We need to be touched by a love that will not allow us to be blinded any longer. We need to burst this bubble that has numbed us and in which our souls will, sooner or later, begin to rot. You may have heard, if you've done any Bible studying or any uh, explorations of academic biblical research, you may have heard of, of Jesus' preferential option for the poor. This is a generally accepted scholarly opinion that in the Gospels, time and time again, Jesus displays a preferential concern for the poor and for the marginal. And I think that's generally an accurate assessment of how the Gospels depict Jesus. 
But this story reminds us that Jesus has an option for those of us in positions of privilege as well. Jesus loves us too, but we make a horrible mistake if we think that that option is to further maintain and enhance our privilege. That's not the option Jesus presents us with. Rather, Jesus invites us to love our neighbor as ourselves. To feel again within ourselves the the basic human connection with and concern for others that warm-blooded, living people naturally feel for one another. To come out of the bubble we've built for ourselves and to pour our gratitude out lavishly on all of God's children. It feels so good to no longer be imprisoned in a bubble that separates us, that numbs us, that divides us. It feels so good to to breathe real oxygen into your lungs and and to touch real human flesh. It feels good to be a part of the human family that God intended us to be all together. That, I believe, is the abundant life. Amen.